Kitavo. In two sentences in this week's Sedra, the Torah summarizes the entire relationship between God and the people of Israel. You have affirmed this day, Marta, that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and observe his laws and commandments and rules and you'll obey him. And the Lord has affirmed you, Emircha, this day that you are, as he promised you, his treasured people who shall observe all his commandments. Here set out with disarming simplicity is the dual relationship, the reciprocity at the heart of the covenant. It's an idea made famous in the form of two jingles. The first one of William Norman Ewer, how odd of God to choose the Jews. And the second, which of course is the Jewish repost, not quite so odd, the Jews chose God. Between God and the people is a mutual bond of love. The Israelites pledged themselves to be faithful to God and his commands. God pledged himself to cherish the people as his treasure. For though he is the God of all humanity, he holds a special place in in his affection to speak anthropomorphically for the descendants of those who first heard and heeded his call to the descendants of Avram and Sarah. That is the whole of Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. The rest is commentary. The English translation above that uh, I just quoted is that of the Jewish publication society Tanakh. However, any translation tends to conceal the difficulty in the key verb in the sentences, he-emir, Now, what is strange is that on one hand, it's a form of the most common of all biblical words, lomar, to say. But on the other, the specific form here, the hifil or causative form, is unique. Nowhere else does it appear in this form in the Bible, and as a result, its meaning is obscure. The JPS translation reads it as affirmed. Ari Kaplan in the Living Terror read it as declared allegiance to. Robert Alter renders it proclaimed. Other interpretations include separated to yourself, that's Rashi, chosen, that's the Septuagint, recognized, that's Sadyagaon, raised, that's Radak and Sforno, betrothed, that's Malbim, given fame to Ibn Janach, exchanged everything else for, that's Chizkuni, accepted the uniqueness of, that's Rashi in his commentary to the Talmud in Chagiga, or caused God to declare, that's Judah HaLevi, cited by Ibn Ezra. Among Christian translations, the King James Version has, Thou hast avouched the Lord this day to be thy God. The New International Version reads, You have declared this day that the Lord is your God. The contemporary English version has, in response, you have agreed that the Lord will be your God. That is dozens of different translations. What is the significance of this unique form of the verb to say? Why is it used here for God's choice of Israel and Israel's choice of God? The use of language in the Torah is not vague or accidental or approximate or imprecise. In general, in the Mosaic books, style mirrors substance. The way something is said is often connected to what is being said. And so I believe it is here, because what we have before us is a proposition of far-reaching consequence for the most fundamental question humanity can ask itself, namely what is the nature of the bond between human beings and God, or for that matter between human beings and one another, such that we can endow our lives with the charisma of grace. The answer given by the Torah, so profound, 
that we need to stop and meditate on it lies in language, in speech, in words. Hence the singling out in this definitive statement of Jewish faith of the meaning to say. We owe it to the later work of Wittgenstein, developed further by the Oxford philosopher J.L. Austin and the American J.R. Searle, the realization that language has many functions. Since the days of Socrates, philosophers have tended to concentrate on just one function, the use of language to describe, to state facts. Hence the key questions of philosophy and subsequently of science. Is this statement true? Does it correspond to the facts? Is it consistent with other facts? Can I be sure? What evidence do I have? What warrant do I have for believing what I believe? Language is the medium we use to describe what is. But that actually is only one use of language. And there are many others. We use it to classify, to divide the world up into particular slices of reality. We also use it to evaluate. So, for instance, patriotism and jingoism both relate to the same phenomenon, namely loyalty to your country but with opposite evaluations. Patriotism means that loyalty is good, and jingoism means that loyalty is bad. We use language to express emotion. Sometimes we simply use it to establish a relationship. Malinowski called this fatic communion. What a lovely phrase, where what matters is not what we say, but the mere fact that we're talking to one another. And that is just bonding. In fact, Robin Dunbar, the Oxford anthropologist, biologist, has recently argued that speech for humans is like grooming behavior among primates. So language is kind of a hug, it's a cuddle, it's a connection. We can also use language to question, to command, to hypothesize, to imagine. There are literary genres like fiction and poetry which use language in complex ways to extend our imaginative engagement with reality. The philosophical scientific mindset that sees the sole significant of function of language as descriptive, which of course was taken to an extreme form by a philosophical movement called logical positivism, is a kind of tone deafness to the rich variety of speech. The Mosaic books contain a deep set of reflections on the nature and power of language. This has much to do with the fact that the Israelites of Moses' day were in the place and at the time when the alphabet first appeared, the proto-Semitic script from which all subsequent alphabets are directly or indirectly derived. Judaism, in fact, is the world's first transition on a national scale from an oral to a literate culture. Hence the unique significance it attaches to the spoken and written word. We discover this at the very beginning of the Torah. It takes the form of this extraordinary statement that God spoke and the world came into being. No contest, no struggle, no use of force to subdue rival powers as there was in every ancient myth without exception. Instead, the key verb in Genesis is simply this verb that we have here in at the end of Devarim, Lemor, God said, Vayome Elohim, God said, let there be, and there was. Language creates worlds. And that, of course, is divine speech. Humans can't create worlds quite so easily. However, 
J.L. Austin pointed out that there is a human counterpart. There are certain things we can create with words when we use them in a special way. He called this performative utterance. So, for example, when a judge says, the court is now in session, he is not describing something, he is doing something. When a groom says to his bride under the wedding canopy, behold, you are betrothed to me by this ring, according to the laws of Moses and Israel, he's not stating a fact, he's creating a fact, he's getting married. The most basic type of performative utterance is making a promise. This is the use of language to create an obligation. Some promises are unilateral. X commits himself to do something for Y. But others are mutual. X and Y make a commitment to one another. Some are highly specific. I promise to pay you a thousand pounds, but others are open-ended. I promise to look after you, come what may. The supreme example of an open-ended mutual pledge between human beings is marriage. The supreme example of an open-ended mutual pledge between human beings and God is a covenant. And that is what our two verses state, that God and the people of Israel pledge themselves to one another by making a covenant, a relationship brought into existence by words, and sustained by honouring those words. Now, I regard this as the single most radical proposition in the Hebrew Bible. It has no real counterpart in any other religion. What is supremely holy is language, when it's used to create a moral bond between two parties. This means that the supreme form of relationship is one that doesn't depend on power, superior force, or dominant submissive hierarchy in a covenantal relationship both parties respect the dignity of the other and a covenant exists only in virtue of freely given consent this also means that between infinite god and infinitesimal humanity there can be relationship because through language we can communicate with one another so the key facts of the torah are that number one god speaks and number two god listens the use of language to create a mutually binding relationship is what links God and humankind. So the two verses mean today, by an act of speech, you have made God your God, and God has, by an act of speech, made you his people. Words, language, and act of saying have created an open-ended, eternally binding covenant. Hence the name I've given to this series of Torah commentaries, Covenant and conversation. Judaism is a covenant, a marriage between God and a people, and the Torah is the written record of that covenant. It is Israel's marriage contract as God's bride, and conversation, speaking and listening, is what makes covenant possible. Hence the dual form of Torah, the written Torah, through which God speaks to us, and the oral Torah, through which we speak to God by way of interpreting his word. Judaism is the open-ended, mutually binding conversation between heaven and earth. And despite the deep influence of Judaism on two later faiths, Christianity and Islam, neither adopted this idea. There are no conversations between God and human beings in either the New Testament or the Quran. None that echo 
the dialogues in Tanakh between God and Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Hosea, Jeremiah, Jonah, Habakkuk, and Job. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the religion of sacred dialogue, the religion of salvation, and the religion of submission are three different things. The use of language to create a moral bond of love between the finite and the infinite through covenant on the one hand, conversation on the other, is what makes Judaism different. That is what is set out simply in these two verses, speaking a relationship into being. Amir is what makes God our God and what makes us his people.